Well, good morning. It's a huge pleasure for me to be here uh, this morning. I'm thankful for this opportunity and uh, just appreciated Dennis getting in contact with me and, and setting this up. I have many good and wonderful memories here at Bethany. Uh, goes back clear to the clear to the 80s. My earliest memories here, Molly would invite me over to Downing to come to the youth conferences. And I remember um, Dave Hunt in particular and, and others that would come and we were, were fed. And that was my early exposure to, to Bethany back at, at Downing Avenue. And so I had to, I was under the scrutiny of the likes of Bob Smith and the elders at the time, Doug Dunkerton and all those, they protected Molly pretty good. Um, and, um, but I was, I was distraught because this morning here at the, at the, uh, in the, in the foyer, I didn't, I fell out of the good graces of brother Bob here because of my beard. So, but he's been a tremendous mentor and supporter, uh, prayer warrior for us as the elders here, as you as a body have been, and uh, we just uh, are so grateful for that. In the, in the year 2000, 2001, we lived in Evansdale, and you guys here just embraced us, and we're so thankful for that. When Molly was back for a kidney transplant, and we, were, we spent 18 months here, and, and you guys served us in the most practical ways possible. We were served by you, and we, we totally appreciate that. You have prayed for us. You have interceded for us. Um, you have supported us financially. And for all this, I'm so grateful. And I've sensed your prayers. Um, and uh, even as, as um, Molly passed away on July 15, and I have never sensed the palpable presence of God so much in those first few weeks after she passed away. And I know it was the prayers of God's people, and I'm so thankful for that. Here, we see over the years, God has blessed you. Many of you, I do not know. The church has grown, and God is blessed, and people have come to know the Lord, and his name is to be honored and glorified through all that. Um, I personally came, I want to share with you just a little bit of my life. Um, I came to know the Lord when I was almost five years old. I grew up on the mission field, my folks were missionaries, and my mom was working over my older brother with the aspects of the gospel, and uh, I was listening, but she wasn't really targeting me. But that night, I came to understand that the penalty for my sin, I didn't have to be talked into the fact that I was a sinner, but I came to understand that the penalty of my sin was me going to hell. And I learned that there was only two destinations after we died. And, if, and our, the penalty for my sin was eternal death. But I learned that Jesus died for me. And he died in my place. And that night, when I was, before I was five years old, I trusted. I believed that. I simply believed it. And I remember the next morning getting up and something was different in my life. And I, I looked at myself. Imagine a five-year-old looking at himself to see what was different. I could feel I was forgiven. There was something different in me. And I actually looked at my arms and my body to see what was different. And that was when the Lord Jesus saved me. So I've never, we have never neglected the ministry. None of us should ever neglect the evangelism of little ones 
for of such is the kingdom of God. At the age of 13, I felt called to the mission field. I went to Bible college, that's where I met Molly. And um, when I asked her parents for her hand in marriage, they said, yes, but. <laughs> know that she's a sick girl. She's, she was diabetic since her teenage years. And I remember thinking to God, Lord, if you give me, if you give her to me for 10 years, I'll be the happiest man in the world. I, th I remember thinking that to God. And uh, he gave her to me for 39 years. So I am indeed the happiest man in the world for having had her for 39 years as my wife, as the love of my life. And um, I'm so grateful. She's with the Lord now, but I am a grateful man. All I have is good memories of a happy, happy marriage. And I want that for, for everybody. I want that for my kids. I want that for everybody. I don't want that image to be stained ever. I'm so grateful. We spent 34 years in Brazil. Our first work was in the city of Nova Russas. We worked with a, a church that was established by previous missionaries, but by God's grace, we were able to see that church grow and to plant eight daughter churches in the surrounding villages. Through mobilization of that church, when I say we planted, we, it's we, it's we with a capital W, it's not me. Everything that we did is to, to God's glory. In the last 10 years, then, we were moved to a plateau because the doctor said, you got to get Molly out of the heat more, and it was cooler up there. So we started from zero there in a town, and um, at, that group has grown to about 50, so it's a small little congregation, but we've been blessed to see that happen. And literally, I say this to God's glory, but we are just a cog in God's kingdom. Because for you to understand how we ever got to the mission field with Molly's condition, she had four kidney transplants, a pancreas transplant, and heart surgery, and all kinds of things. And uh, we were able to minister there for 34 years. So people have prayed for us. How many thousands of people have been involved, invested in us through prayer, through giving, literally giving body parts so we could go back to Brazil. And so it's an amazing thing that God does. We're just part of it. You're obedient to God in the way that he has called you to be obedient. We're obedient to go and God does that work. So the past two years we were back or her last kidney transplant failed after 12 years. So she was, a, I was doing hemodialysis on her at home. I got the training to do that at home. And her heart was failing, and then she got generalized infection. And that last hospital visit, uh, the doctor says, there's nothing else we can do. And I, I wanted two things, at least, that I asked the Lord for was to have my family around when she went into glory and to be able to hold her. And the Lord granted that. Uh, Caleb made it down from Chicago, and before she slipped into coma, we had those precious moments together around her bed, um, praying, um, expressing our love, and God gave us that. And then just moments before she died, 
we were in there, Caleb was on one hand and Nathaniel on the other hand, and I was holding her face. And we prayed um, to release her to the Lord. And within 90 seconds, she was in the presence of the Lord. But before she did, Caleb grabbed my hand and said, Dad, she's, she's squeezing my hand. And he put her hand in my hand and she was squeezing my hand. Literally 90 seconds. She was three days in a coma, but 90 seconds before she left, before she was in glory. So we, the Lord gave us everything we wanted. It was marvelous. And uh, we are so grateful for that. And so I want to talk to you with tonight, today. Dennis said I had 40 minutes. So um, what I most missed after Molly died I did not expect to be the thing I missed most. I had a wonderful life. I had, my, our intimate life was the best any man could ever dream of. I mean, wonderful marriage in every sense of the way, but I never foresaw what I would miss the most. And what I missed the most after she died was a prayer partner, praying together. And then I started thinking, well, we prayed together before the meals. We held hands, no matter where we were, in a restaurant. We'd held hands, bowed our heads, and prayed. Usually it was not just a prayer, because she would, or in her cell phone with a prayer request, she said, don't forget to pray for so-and-so, for so-and-so, for so-and-so. So our prayer times at meals were usually interspersed with other prayer requests. We prayed at night extensively for our family, for the people that we worked with at night together. And any time... She saw something on the phone that we needed to pray. We stopped and prayed. So I started, or I started looking, and, and well, we prayed three, four, minimum four, five, or six times a day. We prayed together. And all of a sudden, I mean, we were praying together, clear through in the hospital and everything. And then she's gone, and I do not have the, the person that I prayed for, fought with, Five and six times a day she was gone. And that's, I did not foresee that as being the most, the thing I would miss the most. And so, that is what I want to speak to today and be of an encouragement to you to cultivate your prayer life in your family. As a church, we need to Cultivate that. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and this might seem like a, not the prime passage, but I think there are some very important messages or lessons to learn from this scripture here. Mark 11, <clears throat> verse 15 through 17, it says, Then he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were, being, who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of money, of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to, to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. Dear Father, we pray that you would 
your spirit would have freedom to apply your word to our hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the choosing of a name is very important. I think all of us as parents have labored over that, agonized over it, what we're going to name our children. After all, they're going to be stuck with it for the rest of their lives, that name. In scriptures, the giving of a name is very important as well. Even sometimes the changing of name. When Jacob wrestled with God, he said, the name of this place is no longer Luz, but Bethel, of the house of God, Bethel. Uh, Abram was changed to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. But it's especially critical when God gives a name. He said to Zachariah, his name shall be John. He said to Mary, his name shall be Jesus. And in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56, God gives a name to his house. He says, Isaiah 56, 7, for my house shall be called, he's naming it, my house shall be called a house of prayer, of prayer for all peoples. And so we see here that God names his house. And this is, this is really a clarification of what Solomon did when he dedicated that temple. He said in 2 Chronicles, Oh my God, I pray, let the ears, thy ears be open and thy eyes be open and thy ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. And God answered with a resounding yes, yes, I will. And Isaiah just clarifies that and Jesus quotes Isaiah in this. So Jesus took the naming of the house of God very seriously. In the cleansing of the temple, he drove out then those uh, money changers in what seems like a, you know, a fit of anger. He, he literally personalizes Isaiah 56, 7. And this is repeated in all four Gospels. Uh, you know, this is important. When the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize something, he repeats it. The nativity scene, for example, in Christmas is just, the nativity scene itself is just in two Gospels. But this is in all four Gospels. When the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize something, he repeats it. So we have something here to learn. Uh, Jesus took the naming of his house seriously. There was something here that was very central to God's plan on earth. It seems strange or it seems out of character sometimes, we think, for that sweet personality, meek but strong, loving, caring, it sort of seems out of place as we t take a first look at it for him to take this strong attitude. But I would submit to you that that was not out of place. I would submit to you that that attitude that he took was very much in character with the holiness and the, the zeal that he had was very much in character. So there was something of great significance going on here. For Jesus to get this upset, there's something big going on. Perhaps a lot bigger than just these money changers or the corruption that was going on because he was surrounded with that all the time. He saw that all the, all the time everywhere. But perhaps he was deeply disturbed, not by just what he saw, but by what he did not see. Prayer. It's easy to say perhaps, oh yeah, yeah, they should have been praying. Of course, they should have been praying. But you know, this was so key and it was so egregious to God that within one generation, that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Yet, 
Even though there's no temple, and that temple that he declared the house of God is destroyed and is still not rebuilt, the concept of the Lord's dwelling, his house, as it were, is not dead. That concept is not dead. That concept is not destroyed. So what is the Lord's dwelling? What is the Lord dwelling in today? Where does his spirit dwell today? Inside of us, yes. Uh, individually, corporately, as the church. The Father's house has never been directly leaked to one place. Even in the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. Even in Solomon's prayer, he says, not even heaven can contain you, much less this little house that I've built for you. So it's not contained in one place. But it is, it is important to understand that today, the church is God's house, or we are God's temple. And I want to challenge you here just for, uh, these, at least I'm going to read these references pretty quick, but at least you can write them down and look at them later. If I say it, you don't have to believe it. But if what I say is backed up by Scripture, then you have to believe it, right? So uh, I'm going to give these, these, uh, these verses to you. And if I were to say, the church is the house of God, I don't think anyone would contest that. But I don't want to just leave it there. Uh, we can see, first of all, in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, it says, In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. The whole building into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being fitted together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We don't even need any other, any other verse, but that isn't that very clear. Uh, we're growing into a holy temple. We are being fitted together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church is the temple. We as individuals as well. Um, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Chapter 6, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Jumping to 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. There's no doubt. 1 Peter 2, 5 also says, you are also as living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. A spirit, you're being built together as living stones. See, so we are living stones building up as a temple of God, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So there's no doubt that the church is the house of God. And uh, if we look at... Uh, a correlation, I think this correlation is interesting. Uh, Pentecost, we know, is the birth of the church. We all take that for, for reality. But look at the correlation between the inauguration of the first temple by Solomon and this new temple, the church. The first temple, that phenomenal, amazing prayer dedication, and when Solomon prayed that, fire came down and filled the temple, the Shekinah glory of God. Fast forward a thousand years, 
and uh, the dedication of a new house uh, in same place in Jerusalem. Where did the fire come down? Where did the glory come down? Individual, individually, the flame came down on the individuals. So I think it's just, just a, a good correlation there. I don't want to make any more of that than that. What has not changed is the name. And I think today, much of America, the American church is in uh, an identity crisis. And we try to figure things out and figure out what kind of a... Um, kind of a culture we live in. We're post-Christian. We have missional churches. We have emerging, emergent churches and attempts to stay relevant. And sometimes I wonder if we're making it too difficult. We are called to be a house of prayer. And that transcends all time. That transcends all culture. Doesn't matter if you're the first century, sixth century, 14th century, or 21st century. Doesn't matter if you live in the USA, South America, Asia, Africa, Europe. It transcends all cultures. He names us that which transcends all time and culture. Other issues, sure, important. But when we align things up in God's order, everything falls into place then. It's not a matter of debate. The owner gets to name the house, right? It's not up for a vote. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And that's what it is. And I... I hear many say, well, yeah, I'd like my church to be a, a more of a praying church. And I thank churches like this who I know do pray. But you know, we can't just shove it off on the church because it's very much about you too as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So why? I want to ask the question, why then? Why a house of prayer? Why did God call it a house of prayer? You know, everyone's for prayer. A, a solid believer, I don't know who is not for prayer, yet often we can't explain why are we to pray. And if we don't why, we don't know why, it's been, it'll be difficult to persist. It will be difficult to give ourselves over to it. And I believe we've fallen prey to an, a, a, a lie of the enemy. And this is hundreds of years ago, and I think we have done injustice to prayer. We have not done academic justice to prayer. Our systematic theologies don't Really, we got all type of ologies in the study of God, but we don't seriously study God. By and large, our, our Bible schools and seminaries have not systematized the study of prayer. They say, oh yes, pray, go ahead and pray. But uh, they tell their students to pray, but we can't do academic justice to this. And I think that we've bought, uh, we've bought into that lie. And we need to devote ourselves to understanding prayer. This is why, understanding why, is going to keep us praying. So let's look at this why. Why should we pray? We, we need to realize, first of all, that we're dealing with something supernatural. We're dealing with that which is supernatural. And the godly anger of Jesus could have only been about something that was totally opposed to God's plan on earth. So when we see the godly anger of Jesus clearing the temple, that could have been only because of something that was directly opposed to God's plan on earth. I want you to look a few verses back in Mark 11, 11. <clears throat> Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve 
since it was already late. This is just right before verse 15. He went to the temple. It says, he looked at everything. Didn't do anything. He just looked at everything. It was late. And then he went to Bethany. And, you know, I thought, excuse me here, uh, that really Jesus, oh, this is sort of like a spiritual temper tantrum. Yeah, without, without sin, of course, without sin. He kind of lost it, but kept it together, you know. Um, but it says, no, he left here before, the day before, he went in the temple and looked at everything. And then he went to Bethany. And he left for Bethany with the 12, perhaps to Lazarus' house, Mary and Martha. We don't know, it doesn't say, but that's probably where he went. And he had that whole night to think. And he never did anything on his own. So obviously he was in communion and fellowship with the Father. And when he went back to Jerusalem the next day, he was a man on a mission. After what he had seen there, he saw everything the day before. And so... Uh, then he came back, verse 15, he came back then to Jerusalem as a man on a mission. Now, John has another detail that's important. John 2.15 says this, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. He made a scourge. See, the impression I've had many times is, well, he saw this, he grabbed that whip, that, whatever was closest to him and started, you know, it was just like a knee-jerk reaction. No, this was not a knee-jerk reaction. He went there the night before, he saw it all, he went to Bethany, he meditated on it, he was in communion with the Father, and he braided that scourge with his own hands. And when he went back there, he was on mission. God had invested a great thing in prayer. And that, whatever was going on there, was totally in total opposition to God's plan on earth. Prayer is God's way of bringing about his purposes on planet earth. At the same time, helping us to mature as Christians, as his children. Prayer is, is the outworking, really, of the sovereignty of God. And, uh, and uh, God is... Like we know, we all believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. He's totally in charge. God does it uh, his way. But the omnipotent creator of the universe, in his omnipotence, in his sovereignty, he has chosen prayer as a means to accomplish things on earth. He has chosen in his sovereignty, he has chosen to include us in this loop. And... Um, we as believers, when we realize this and participate in it, we grow, we mature. He chose us to have a role in it. So prayer is not just a, um, about seeing how long you pray or how many people you can get prayed for. It, it all has a part to do with it, but that's not the end or the purpose of it. All true prayer originates in the heart of God. Um, and... Every good and perfect gift comes from above, and I think prayer is one of those good and perfect gifts. And so, if, uh, if all prayer, true prayer, originates in the heart of the Father, then I want you just to picture me. I'm going to draw a circle here, just a circle. And it can actually be more properly called a cycle. But if God is up here, God the Father is here, and uh, of course, 
if all prayer originates in the, in the heart of God and the thoughts of God, who can know the thoughts of the Father? You know, who can know the thoughts of the Father? 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For whomever, for whom among us knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit which dwells in him, even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So who knows the thoughts of the Father? The Spirit. So right here at this, at this part of the circle, we have the Spirit of God. And we're down here, we have the believer, and over here we have Jesus, okay? So we have this circle with four parts. God the Father. Who knows the thoughts of the Father other than the Spirit of God? And we're admonished then, as we know in Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. How? In the Spirit. We are to pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? Under the control and the nudging of the Spirit. So as the Spirit directs us, if we're praying in the Spirit, we're, the Spirit is nudging us, directing us how to pray. Where did he get those thoughts? From the Father. Who knows the thoughts of the Father? The Spirit. We're praying in the Spirit. And we offer that prayer up to God the Father in the name of Jesus. Not just a tack on the end of our prayer, but it's in the name and authority of Jesus that we pray. So, if, if you look at, uh, at prayer then, uh, pr prayer is really three-fourths God, right? Here's God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. Where's the weak link? <laughs> Down here, isn't it? But he has chosen to include us in that, that, that marvelous circle. We are included in that. That is phenomenal for us to understand that. We pray in the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, to the Father. It's important for us to, uh, to understand that. And um, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Certain things we won't get if we don't ask for. There are certain things that we don't. Jesus, when teaching his disciples how to pray, they said, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, that's not just a pious recitation. He's teaching them how to pray. How would, how would we like to get that lesson from Jesus? He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like something in heaven is waiting to come down as per our request. We need to, we need to comprehend that and try to understand that. A good example of that is in uh, Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel... The children of Israel and Judah, uh, they were continued, they had continued in sin, 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 unrepentant. And God was going to destroy them. And um, they, their, the dire consequences was their destruction. God wanted to show mercy to them. But listen what Ezekiel says um, in Ezekiel twenty-two thirty: I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. God wanted to save the land. God wanted to show mercy. And he searched for one. He was looking here for an intercessor. He searched for that intercessor and he could not find it. So it, it was destroyed. The, the picture here is of, uh, the image of, is of a walled city. There's protected by a wall, and because of neglect, a gap developed. 
And this gap was a point of danger. This gap was a vulnerability. This gap was leading to their, going to lead to their destruction. And so um, he looked for someone to stand in that gap so to avert the destruction. Why didn't he just save it? Why didn't he just save Israel? That's not the way God works. He doesn't do it that way. He didn't want us to just step in. He works through people. Do not look at this as a limitation on God's sovereignty. It's quite the opposite. Because he chose in his omnipotence to do it this way, to include us in what he does here on earth. In God's amazing wisdom, he matures us to bring us into this process. There's another example. This is a good example of Moses. You all know that when he was on the, the here in Ezekiel, he couldn't find anyone to stand in the gap. But uh, in Moses, you know, when he was on the Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, and it was amazing. This is, this is like the history has never been the same after these Ten Commandments. This is like one of those hinge points in human history. And he was receiving those Ten Commandments, and the people of Israel were down there worshiping the golden calf. And Moses said, uh, God said to Moses, hey, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy that people. Look at them. They're committing spiritual adultery with that golden calf. Let me destroy them. Moses, step aside. But you know what happened? There was an intercessor. Moses stood in the gap. And yes, that's the gap. In uh, Psalm 106, talks about that. 106.23, it says, Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the gap. He interceded. And that was part of God's plan. That ended good. Yes, the, the 70,000 were killed. There were still consequences for the sin, but the nation was saved because he stood in the gap. Prayer is how God has chosen to accomplish his will on earth. That changes, changes everything. It's nothing, it's not self-serving, right? But it's a participation in God's plan on earth. He's entrusted a huge, a huge thing to us here. Now I'll go back to the temple. You see why Jesus was so upset when he walked into that scenario? The way God had chosen to accomplish his will on earth was being disrupted. It was to be a house of prayer for all nations. God had said, I want you to understand, my people, that when you come here and pray, you are going to see me move. This is how I'm going to do work on planet earth. And it's not just for you Jews also, it's for all nations. This was intended to be a picture of how God was going to do work and Jesus walked into that and saw everything except prayer. And I didn't finish the quote, the verse there. As we finish it says, it shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. They had stolen away something precious from God. That was his purpose in prayer. 
they had stolen away the way God had chosen to work on earth. In essence, Jesus was saying, if you're not going to do, if, not, if you're not going to be a house of prayer like I've named you, like I've intended, then there's no purpose for you at all. And in one generation, that temple was destroyed, 70 AD. But you know today, and I think for purposes, it was destroyed, that it sort of gets our eyes off of that. But it, it focuses on where God is dwelling, on the God's dwelling today. And God still looks to see if his house, his temple, is a house of prayer. So Jesus looks carefully at you as a temple of his most Holy Spirit. And he peers into your life, into yourself at you. And he's eagerly wanting to see a house of prayer. Because that's his dwelling. We cannot relegate prayer to the few prayer warriors in the church. Not just for the leader, it's not just for the leadership. It's who we are. It's who, it's what God has named us. A house of prayer. Prayer was modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look at the life of Jesus in prayer. We could learn a lot from that. As a, as a corporate body, uh, the church modeled prayer in the book of Acts in a phenomenal way. That's another great, wonderful study. God chose prayer because all can do it. He didn't call this a house of singing, a house of preaching, a house of Bible study, house of evangelism, even though all those things we do with the utmost of zeal. But he called it a house of prayer because a newborn babe in Christ can pray earnestly to the Lord as well as a 70-year-old saint can pray. And so, I just want to be an encouragement to you in that area because it's what I most missed when my wife died was that fellowship, that companionship in prayer many times every day. And you know, I didn't know I was blessed that way. I didn't foresee that that's what I would miss the most. But it's a legacy that I have that I didn't know I had. I had that I didn't know I had. But I missed it. So I just want to, to be an encouragement to you and uh, uh, to, to, to be, you know, you can be a mighty powerhouse of prayer. You. God wants us to be that powerhouse. He wants his dwelling to be a powerhouse of prayer. So let's be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Let's pray at all times in the Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Let's not be the weak link. And God says, if you ask in my name, I will move in a mighty way. And I'm testimony to that. Because I've seen God answer your prayers in my life. I thank you so much for your prayers. And I just, wanna, I just wanted to spend this time encouraging you to pray. You are a house of prayer. You are the dwelling of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word and the value 
that you give in prayer, how you've included us in this wonderful cycle of how you want to do things here on earth. And you've chosen to include us in a, in a wonderful way. Lord, as you look into our lives, as a dwell in your spirit, help us all to be mighty houses of prayer. And corporately, we could also be powerhouse of prayer. I ask it in the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.